0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, uh, I have a question to ask you What does God want us to do? Isn't that, isn't that always our big question? If you're a child of God, isn't that what you, you want to know? You know, I just, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do in my life. Well, if you'll turn with me to Micah, the 6th chapter and the 8th verse, I'm going to answer that question with Scripture. Now, it's not going to tell you which career path to take, and it's not going to tell you who to marry, and it's not going to tell you uh, how many children to have or, or, or whether to change jobs or whether to, uh, to, to move to this part of the country, but it is going to tell you the answer that you need in answering all of those questions. What does God want me to do? And in fact, this is the way it's written in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Here is the answer to the question, what does God want me to do? What does the Lord require of me? And it's a threefold answer, and I believe if we'll understand it the way it is intended here, it will help us in every aspect of our lives. So let's look at it. What doth the Lord require? First thing is to do justly. Apparently, justice is important to God. Now the idea of it says to do justly, it carries the idea of a judicial verdict being handed down. And in an abstract way, it, has the, it carries the idea of justice or right, that which is just or lawful or according to the law. Or the idea, even grander than that, of that which is proper or fitting and appropriate. In other words, to do what's appropriate under the circumstances. And justice, this idea of justice is so important because justice, I believe, is an attribute of God. Justice is an at righteousness is, is a similar word. It means the same thing. Justice is an attribute of God. We're told in Isaiah thirty verse eighteen, the Lord is a Lord is a God rather of judgment. The Lord is a God of judgment, and it's it's the same idea. God is a just God. How many times do we read in the scriptures? He is a just God. That means God is concerned with justice. God is concerned with doing right over in the 97th division of the psalm we read this about the habitation of god in 97 verse 2 um well let's begin in verse 1 the lord reigneth let the earth rejoice let the multitudes of isles be glad thereof are you glad god is on the throne i am i'll tell you with all the turmoil and troubles of the past year year and a half I am thankful that God is on the throne but notice this about his throne clouds and darkness around about him righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne in other words his throne is established upon judgment and righteousness these two the idea of righteousness that which is uh, that which is just and the idea of justice is that which is right so they're inextricably linked you see and it says, in back, if you back up to chapter 96 and verse 13, we're told that, uh, that He's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. God is a just God. The Lord is a God of judgment. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of His throne. And by the way, justice is an attribute of God, but it's also an action and not just a theory. You remember uh, what it says here in Micah 6.8, it says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly. Do justly. That's two Hebrew words there. Sometimes when a, when a, a, a phrase like that is translated as one word, this is two words. Two words. The word do has the primitive meaning, the very basic primitive meaning in the Hebrew of just to make or to produce by labor. You know, and it makes sense, right? To do something means you're expending energy, you're laboring on it, you're creating something or making something by labor. And that's very appropriate because justice in the Bible is kind of like the concept of love in the Bible. You know, we think of love in our society as your heart goes pitter pat. love's a noun, love's an adjective, maybe love, you know, but, but love in the Bible is not about a feeling, it's not a theory, it's not theoretical in some fairy tale sense, it is very practical. How in the world else could you love your enemies? That's, that's, too, that's too, I can't do it. I can, you, you mean to tell me I've got to feel good toward my enemies? I've got people that hate me today, I don't feel good toward them. I don't I don't like to be in their presence. I don't I, you know, I can't I can't work up these these overflowing gushy thoughts about them. But you know what I can do? I can treat them right. I can love them in the biblical sense. See, the biblical sense of love is that you treat them right. You it's an action verb. You're doing right by them. You're not doing them wrong. You're doing them right. You may not feel good about it, but you're doing them right. You see? Same thing here with justice. Justice, I took a course or two in, in college about you know, theoretical things, philosophical things regarding justice and judgment and all that. Didn't do me a bit of good. Because <laughs> you know what judgment and justice is all about in the scripture, it's about doing justly. You know, he didn't say, think about justice and try to be just and, and, and think about it in theoretical terms. No, he says, do justly. You get out there and work. You, you, by laboring, you create justice in the sense of you do what is right. You know, that describes God, doesn't it? We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 that He's the rock. His work is perfect for all His ways are judgment. All His ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is He. I love the verse in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, where Abraham begins negotiating with God for for sparing Sodom. And, And, you know, he starts at 50 and he gets down to 10, and God says, I won't destroy it for 10 people. And then, of course, he couldn't even find 10 people over there that were living right and doing right. But be that as it may, he asks the question of God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, I probably overemphasize this here because I, t- I talk about it a lot, but it's so important to remember that justice in God's mind is about doing right. It's not about thinking right, although, you know, it helps to do right if you're thinking right. <laughs> but, uh, but, but God is not just a God that sits up in the heavens and thinks, oh, I, I like to think great flowery thoughts about justice. No, the judge of all the earth does right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Over in Job, uh, Job had three friends, actually four, when you count Elihu. He had three friends that he calls miserable comforters. And we'll see, we'll see why. Over in the eighth chapter there of the book of Job, let me just turn there and read what he says. Bildad uh, here is one of his friends, and Bildad comes to Job and um, And 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 he's he's getting on to Job, basically. He's he's fussing at Job. And and in Bildad's way of thinking, which is the way a lot of us think, and we're going to see where the problem comes in here in a minute, that's kind of the way we think. And if something bad happens to somebody, well, he must have done something really bad for that bad thing to come upon him. You know, we tend to judge people. You know, (laughs) I, I, I won't even go there. I'll just say this. I know some people that have been that way, and I tell you, I try to avoid those people because <laughs> they're, they're, they'll, they'll bring you down, my friends, I'll tell you. But notice what he says here. He's, they're, they're trying to explain to Job why God is, is afflicting him, which, first of all, God's not afflicting him, see? They're, they're, they're thinking God is, but, uh, you know, I've said before, God gets blamed for so many things that he, he didn't do. You know, every tragedy that comes upon you is not sent from God. Uh, cancer, uh, Parkinson's. All those things. Brother Glenn touched on it. You know the reason we have shorter lives today? It's not because God uh, decided, well, I'm going to zap you at a certain time. It's because Adam sinned and our, now our bodies are corrupt. Decay comes quicker. Decay comes stronger. Uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, uh, oftentimes we say, well, the Lord took him. Well, sometimes I, I do grant you that the Lord is merciful and takes his children sometimes out of a bad situation. But generally speaking, you can blame death on Adam, not on God. God is not God. Jesus calls death the enemy. He's not working with the enemy. I'll tell you, beloved. God is the great overruler of death. He's the great. Uh, he's the great deliverer from death. <laughs> but here we see that they're saying, Job, this God's doing this to you for a reason, and, and and you've got. There must be something in your life, some unconfessed sin or something like that in your life. And he says, he, he, he begins to fuss at him. In verse 1, Bildad the Shuhite said, How long wilt thou speak these things? How long will the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? In other words, Job, you're just, you're just using up good air. You need to quit, you need to quit talking these crazy things. Uh, they've been trying to tell him there's something, something wrong with him. And he says this, Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? And this is another rhetorical question, by the way, just like uh, the question asked in Micah 6, 8. The answer is a resounding no. He's right about this. God never perverts judgment. The Almighty never perverts justice. But that kind of brings us to a a little problem with our verse here, our, our text verse. Over in the 34th chapter of Job, let's just look there just for a second. Elihu has come on the scene now, and Elihu gets it more right than the rest of them, but he still doesn't get it all right. Uh, Elihu begins talking about Job, and he's saying things that, look, Job says this, y'all are saying this, you know, you're both wrong. And then he says in verse 12, Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. So... (laughs) What Bildad and Elihu both are saying is this, that they're legalists, okay? They're legalists. They're saying, well, for every act, there must be a consequence. So if I see a consequence, there must have been a bad act. And, and, and God is a just God, okay? God is a God who doesn't let these little things pass. And if you're experiencing problems, this must be because something you've done you know that really is a problem isn't it i mean listen, remember what we said god is a just god and that means for every sin there must be payment we're told about sin in in the book of uh habakkuk i believe it is where it says that god is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity in other words we got problems We got problems because I don't know if you've thought about it lately about your life. If you sat down and examined your life, but if, if you have, you will have come to the same conclusion that I've come to. And that is that I'm a sinner. I am a wretch. Uh, Paul tells it this way. He says, I'm sold under sin. I'm sold under sin. Even as a child of God. I believe who has been born of the Spirit, who has the Spirit of God with it I believe all, I wouldn't be standing up here if I didn't believe, didn't have some hope that that's what I that's, that's that I'm a child of God. Even that, even thusly, I am a sin cursed child of Adam, and Adam multiplied, as I used to hear Elder Armin Rich say. So, how do you get around that? with a just god because look the next thing god says in micah 6 8 through micah micah tells us that we're to do justly but he also says we're to love mercy we're to love mercy now god requires mercy he requires mercy of us not just harsh justice But it has to be tempered with mercy. But how can that be? Because mercy, by definition, is not just. And justice, by definition, is not merciful. It's not fair. When a judge implements justice, he cannot be showing mercy. And when he shows mercy, he cannot also be doing justice. There's a problem here. And yet God requires it. So what is the answer? Well, God not only Requires mercy, but praise his holy name, he has provided mercy. He has provided mercy. Remember, okay, remember what he had to do. You know, the concept of mercy is so important to God that he had to go to links that no man could ever go to in order to provide it to us. In the 85th Psalm, what a precious verse. We've talked about it many times here, I know. But I never tire of going back and reading it. In 85, Psalm 85, in verse 10, he he says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. But hold on here just for a minute. We just got through saying that mercy and justice or truth can never come together. If a true verdict is rendered, then mercy cannot be shown. If mercy is shown, then truth has not been dealt with if righteousness is to be the case then there can be no peace with God if if righteousness is to be done then there's no reconciliation that can be that can be done uh, put together between man and God but here we see that righteousness and peace have kissed each other and mercy and truth are met together beloved mercy and truth and righteousness and peace met together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary That's the place where God's justice met His mercy and His grace was the result. When mercy met justice and Jesus paid the debt through mercy and love for His people, then grace and mercy is the result. You see, God is a just God. God does demand payment with exactness. He's like an accountant. There is going to be no unpaid debt on the the register in heaven. Every single sin will be paid for in some way. Either it will be paid on for eternity by the ones who committed it, or it was paid for for eternity by the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of His people. Mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. And because of that, because of that, it has a very practical effect for us. Certainly, we should do justly. Certainly, we should be interested in judgment and justice and doing the right thing and and making sure that, that right prevails in our works and in our actions. But oh, praise God, because we've been shown mercy, we also should love mercy when it comes to our brothers and our sisters and those living around us. And by the way, that doesn't just limit itself to the members of our church or members of our faith, that's also to apply to those who have given us no indication that they're even interested in the things of God. You know why that is? Think about the thief on the cross. Think about what evidence of salvation or spirituality he showed in his life. I've said this before, and I stand by it, that that if his mom and daddy were still living at the time he was crucified, unless they were by God's mercy able to read the book of Luke one day, they probably thought their son died and went to hell. Because he wasn't someone who was... You know, there wasn't one good thief and one bad thief. That's what the world wants to say. Oh, there was one... Thief crying out for mercy. There was one mocking. No, they were both mocking. Read the 27th chapter of Matthew. Read Mark, the, the 15th chapter. You'll see they were both mocking. They were both cursing. But something happened to the one thief. Something happened that didn't involve a preacher. <laughs> that didn't involve a Bible tract. It didn't involve baptism. It didn't involve any man whatsoever. It involved the, the man of God. The man who was the son of God. The son of man and the son of God something changed in his heart just like that just like those in the second chapter of peter whose hearts were pricked you know the other it's a perfect example of that there was one thief and and at one point both thieves who were simply cut to the heart they were mocking him said save yourself you claim you could you save yourself and save us But, oh, at some point on that cross, the other thief's heart was pricked and not just cut to the heart. I can cut you to the heart, but only the Holy Spirit can prick you in the heart. And he made that great statement of faith, Lord. You know what we're told about the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? He didn't look like a king. He didn't even look like a man says his visage was marred more than any man he looked so pitiful you know all these beautiful pictures of jesus these paintings of him hanging on the cross with this glowing face that's not our lord let me tell you that's not our lord it was it was horrible what they did to him you think about those great thorns that had been pressed down into his forehead and the scalp that was no doubt clinging to his, uh, hanging down from his head, and the blood that was all over him, and all the beatings he had endured, he looked like nothing so much as an animal that had been run over, we might say today. He didn't look like a king. We're told in Galatians 5.22 that one of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit is faith. One of the ninefold fruit. In other words, you don't have faith till you have the Spirit. That's a fruit of the Spirit. You know, the fruit doesn't bear the tree. The tree bears the fruit. You know, you know, an apple doesn't make a tree an apple tree. An apple's an apple because he's hanging on an apple tree. You see, it came from an apple tree. Faith doesn't make you a child of God. Faith is a result of having been born of the Spirit, having been made a child of God. He looks at him and he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What a statement of faith. What a statement of trust. That didn't come from somewhere that he had worked up within himself or from some message or sermon he'd heard somebody preach. That came as a direct result of the new birth, of being born of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, remember me. See, that's why we can't pick and choose you know jesus didn't say go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to all those that give evidence of being children of god did he i mean that'd be that'd be nice wouldn't it i I think it was ch spurgeon or some some older preacher anyway from years past made the statement one time that he said if the if the elect of god were identifiable by a yellow stripe on their back i'd be running around pulling everybody's shirt up to see if they had it before i preached to them (laughs) Because it wouldn't do me any good to preach to anybody else. But you see, God didn't give us that knowledge. He didn't give us that ability. He said, you go preach to every creature. And that means you treat every creature in a way that he's saying here by doing justly and by showing mercy, loving mercy, you see. You know, over in the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, I believe it is, it gives us a pretty good idea of what we need to be doing and why. He tells us a whole lot of things we ought to put off and a whole lot of things we ought to put on, but in kind of a summation, we'll start with verse 31 in Ephesians 4. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You know it just like I do. I know you well enough to know that you're like me. and. You know, when you get into a situation where somebody treats you badly, what's well, the first thing that happens? It's not, oh, I love you so much. You know, somebody says something ugly to you, oh, I love to hear that. I love. No, it's, it's wanting to go back at them. It's wanting to curse. If they curse you, you want to curse them. If they cut you off in traffic, <laughs> you want to speed up and get around them and cut them off, right? I'll show them. That's justice, right? That's justice. You know that's the world calls it karma. I don't. That's not a biblical term, but there is somewhat of a idea of justice. The things, ha, you know, things uh, coming back around to, to to afflict you when you. But, but see, that's not what we're to do. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, <clears throat> they did be put away. You say, wait a minute, Paul. That's so hard to do. What are we supposed to do? Well, he says, and be ye kind. One to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That is so hard to do. How, how in the world can I do that, Paul? Well, the, the answer is you can't in the world. You've got to get your mind out of the world. Because notice what he says. Even as God, for Christ's sake, <laughs> hath forgiven you. You know how you can can remember to to be kind to the one who's cursing you? It's by remembering that Jesus was kind to you when you were cursing him. I never cursed him. Well, maybe you didn't curse him with your mouth, but maybe in your actions. Say, have you ever denied him? No, I've never denied him. Have you ever tried to hide the fact that you're a child of God when you're out in the world? I, I be, I confess to you, there've been times in my life, especially in my younger life, where I just wanted to look like them and act like them and just fit in to the world, same way Peter did. But you know what happened to the relationship I had with Jesus at that moment? Not one thing. He still loved me. He still showed me kindness. He went all the way up Calvary's hill. You see, and because of that, God doesn't expect us to pervert justice, but neither does he expect us to be harsh legalists without compassion. You know, we haven't had to deal with anything in a church way in years. Praise God. I hope we never have to. But if we do have to deal with it, and in the past when we've dealt with someone in a disciplinary way in the church, I'm so thankful, and I brag on you, I, 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 I give you good marks for this, is that nobody here, and I hope that the Lord blesses us that it never, we never approach it that way, nobody here had a harsh legalist attitude. The whole purpose was, was to show, try to do what God said in love with the purpose of restoration. You know, that's what discipline of the church is all about. It's not about, oh, we can, how many can we exclude? I know, I know preachers that have been that way. How many people can we exclude from church? I've excluded some. No, beloved, if I never had to ex- be part of excluding anybody from the fellowship of the church again, I would rejoice with God. And those that we do have to deal with, the purpose is to bring them back. Mercy. And finally, in the time we have left, Let's look at the last one here, humility. He said, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. (laughs) Now, by nature, we're not humble, are we? By nature, we're prideful, self-focused. In fact, that's the cause of the first sin. If you look at it and you you realize that when the serpent came to Eve, he began to question God. And then he said to her, "Uh, by the way, God is keeping something from you. And if you'll just eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And that's really the root of just about every sin. I want what I want, and I want it now. I don't care what God says. It's pride, self-focus. But you see, God demands humility. This, this in Micah 6, 8 is not a question. I mean, it's formed in a question, but it's really a commandment. What does the Lord require of you? He's not saying, do justly, love mercy. No, no he's saying, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. We would all do well to remember the most basic truth of life. Here You say, well, oh, I've been looking for this. What is, what is the most basic truth of life? Here's the, I'm fixing to give it to you. You write it down, you keep it, put it away, you... The most basic truth of life. He is God and I'm not. That's pretty basic, isn't it? He is God and I'm not. The thing that we need to remember in life more than anything else is that he reigns and we don't. We are his subjects. Job said one time in the 23rd chapter of Job, we we won't turn there because our time's about gone. But Job said, you know, Job was having problems. Job was afflicted by the devil. And then he was afflicted by his friends. And Job, for the most part, was right. But Job wasn't perfect. So remember that when you read Job. Everything Job says isn't just right. Much of it is. There's many things. If it, and if the way you say, how do I tell the difference? Well, you can tell the difference by measuring it against other scripture. Brother Glenn mentioned this morning, the scriptures are inerrant. So if Job says something that matches up with the rest of the scriptures uh, in the Bible, then then he's right. But there's a time or two where he gets it wrong. And in one place he says, you know, uh, my complaint is bitter here. My stroke is heavier than I can bear. He said, I just wish I knew where God was. I want to find him that I might come to his seat. And he said, I would order my cause before him. And that's a legal term. I would argue my case before God. You ever, you ever felt that way? Say, God, where are you? God, I just, I want to, something's not right. I need to talk to you, Lord. I want to lay out my case for why things are not going the way I think they should. In the 38th chapter of Job, he found God. <laughs> God came on the scene. And God began to ask him some questions. Where were you, Job? When I laid the foundations there, what, what were you doing when I said to the oceans, you can go this far and no further? When I, when I created all this world, where were you at? And Job, I'm paraphrasing, of course, you read it. Basically, he's, the, the implication is, Job, if you can answer these questions, then we'll talk. Otherwise, you need to listen. And you know what Job ended up saying in the 40th chapter? He said, you know, I've spoken twice, but now I'm going to lay my hand on my mouth. I'll be silent. I realize, you know what Job realized? He is God, and I'm not. And if you can keep that in mind, then you'll be able to do what God says, which is walk humbly with God. The definition of humility here, walking humbly, means to be lowly or modest or submissive. It's very close to meekness, very much akin to meekness. In Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, Christ said. You know, meekness is mildness of disposition. It's not weakness. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And and he says, I'm meek and lowly. He says, my burden is light. He, He calls himself meek and lowly. Well, he wasn't weak. He wasn't ineffective. He wasn't powerless. He was the God of the universe. I don't know if he was bullied as a child. But I'm sure if he played with any other children, there were times when they tried to take advantage of him. Every child has experienced that. They'll gang up on you. I don't know if they ever ganged up on him, but if they did, can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I don't believe he came to a sudden realization one day that he was God. He knew from the early age on. In fact, we know when he was 12, he knew what his father's business was. And, and can you imagine those kids throwing rocks at him or calling him names or... Not, not, you know, choosing him for the team or whatever. Can you imagine Jesus looking around? He looks up at these mountains over here and he says, you know, I made those mountains. I could pick that mountain up and drop it on these kids here. Uh, look at that tree over there. I could, I could take that tree. I made that tree. I could take that tree and I could whip them with every branch if I wanted to. But he didn't do it. He had the power. You know why he didn't do it? Because he was meek. He was meek. He humbled himself to come down and be not just like us, but be one of us, except without the sin nature. See, meekness is restrained power. Meekness is restrained power. To be humble doesn't mean you're weak. To be meek doesn't mean you're weak. To be humble means that you are recognizing that God is God and you are not. And by the way, I want to leave you with this. Our time is up. I've heard people say this before. You know, I'm just, I'm just too humble to join the church. Is that humility? In the, the letter to, the, to Philippi, the Philippian letter. In the second chapter, in verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Notice, this is the mindset of Christ. He wasn't coming down here to say, man, I'll tell you what, I'm fixing to take some names and we're going we're to set this thing right. He came down here to be humble. He humbled himself, made himself of no reputation. And now listen, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross did you know that the concept of obedience is inextricably linked with the idea of humility if you're going to be humble you're going to have to be obedient you say i'm too humble to join the church no you're too proud to join the church you're too proud you think you you may i'm too you're not you're not being obedient to what god says well i'm just a sin sick sin racked sinner yes but he's told you in the word that he saved his people from their sins and he's made us worthy even though we're not worthy in ourselves he's made us worthy if you would be humble if you would walk humbly with god that means that you would obey god so wrapping all this up God has given us the answer to the question, what is it that we need to be doing? Now, maybe you need to do it as a farmer. Maybe you need to do it as a factory worker. Maybe you need to do it as a firefighter. Maybe you need to do it as a preacher. Maybe you need to do it as a lawyer. Maybe you need to do it as some other. Wherever you are, though, you need to do three things, and that is all God requires of you, which is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly or be obedient.